Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 63, Start the Revolution Without Me. I have a jam-packed episode for you. Oh my gosh. I'm going to try and fit two huge audio files here for you. And real quick, start the revolution without me. Completely goofy movie. Go rent it, but don't pay more than $2 for it. You will see a very, very brief picture of Madame Defarge, very old and ugly, not young and hot, in a silent film version of Tale of Two Cities. Um, Everything else I'm going to blow off because we have two very long episodes. The first one, Chapter 9, which is um, the game made, we get uh, the follow-up on Sidney and what he's up to, and you're going to hear more of the resurrection theme. And then we're going to head straight into Chapter 10, which is the substance of the shadow. You would kill me if I didn't do these two back-to-back, so I apologize for how quickly I'm going, but... uh, You're going to like me more for it in the long run. Okay, here we go. Chapter 9. The Game Made While Sidney Carton and the sheep of the prisons were in the adjoining dark room, speaking so low that not a sound was heard, Mr. Lorry looked at Jerry in considerable doubt and mistrust. That honest tradesman manner of receiving the look did not inspire confidence. He changed the leg on which he rested as often as if he had fifty of those limbs and were trying them all. He examined his finger-nails with a very questionable closeness of attention, and whenever Mr. Lorry's eye caught his, he was taken with that peculiar kind of short cough requiring the hollow of a hand before it, which is seldom, if ever, known to be an infirmity attendant on perfect openness of character. "'Jerry,' said Mr. Lorry, "'come here.' Mr. Cruncher came forward sideways with one of his shoulders in advance of him. "'What have you been besides a messenger?' After some cogitation accompanied with an intent look at his patron, Mr. Cruncher conceived the luminous idea of replying, "'Agricultural character!' "'My mind misgives me much,' said Mr. Lorry, angrily shaking a forefinger at him, "'that you have used the respectable and great house of Telson's as a blind, and that you have had an unlawful occupation of an infamous description.' if you have don't expect me to befriend you when you get back to england if you have don't expect me to keep your secret telson shall not be imposed upon i hope sir pleaded the abashed mr cruncher that a gentleman like yourself what i've had the honour of odd jobbing till i'm grey at it would think twice about arming of me even if it was so i don't say it is but even if it was and which it is to be took into account that if it was it wouldn't even then be all on one side there'd be two sides to it 
There might be medical doctors at the present hour, a-picking up their guineas where an honest tradesman don't pick up his fardens. Fardens? No. Nor yet is our fardens. Our fardens? No. Nor yet is quarter, a-banking away like smoke at Telson's, and a-cocking their medical eyes at that tradesman on the sly, a-going in and going out to their own carriages. Ah! <laughs> Equally like smoke, if not more so. "'Well, that'd be imposing too on Telsons, "'for you cannot sass the goose and not the gander. "'And here's Mrs. Cruncher, or leastways was in the old England times, "'and would be to-morrow, if calls given, "'a flopping again the business to that degree as is ruinating, "'stark ruinating, whereas them medical doctors' wives don't flop, "'catch em at it, or if they flop, their floppings goes in favour of more patience. "'And how can you rightly have one without t'other? "'Then, what with undertakers, and what with parish clerks, "'and what with sextons, and what with private watchmen, "'all avaricious and all in it, "'a man wouldn't get much by it, even if it was so. "'And what little a man did get would never prosper with him, Mr. Lorry. "'He'd never have no good of it. "'He'd want all along to be out the line if he could see his way out, "'being once in, even if it were so.' "'Ugh!' cried Mr. Lorry, rather relenting, nevertheless. "'I am shocked at the sight of you.' "'Now, what I would humbly offer to you, sir,' pursued Mr. Cruncher, "'even if it was so, which I don't say it is,' "'Don't prevaricate,' said Mr. Lorry. "'Now I will not, sir,' returned Mr. Cruncher, "'as if nothing were further from his thoughts or practice, "'which I don't say it is. "'What I would humbly offer to you, sir, would be this. "'Upon that there stall, at that there bar, "'sets that there boy of mine, "'brought up and growed up to be a man. "'What will errand you, message you, "'general light job you, "'till your eels is where your head is, "'if such should be your wishes. "'If it was so, which I still don't say it is, "'for I will not prewarricate to you, sir, "'let that there boy keep his father's place "'and take care of his mother. "'Don't blow upon that boy's father. "'Do not do it, sir, "'and let that father go into the line of the regular digging "'and make amends for what he would have undone, "'if it was so, by digging of em in with a will "'and with convictions respecting the future keeping of em safe.' "'That, Mr. Lorry,' said Mr. Cruncher, "'wiping his forehead with his arm, "'as an announcement that he had arrived "'at the peroration of his discourse, "'is what I would respectfully offer to you, sir. "'A man don't see all this here going on dreadful round him "'in the way of subjects without heads, dear me, "'plentiful enough for to bring the price down to portridge, "'and hardly that, without having his serious thoughts of things.' "'and these here would be mine, if it was so, "'entreating of you for to bear in mind "'that what I said just now "'I up and said in the good cause "'where I might have kept it back.' "'That at least is true,' said Mr. Lorry. "'Say no more now. "'It may be that I shall yet stand your friend, "'if you deserve it, and repent in action, "'not in words. "'I want no more words.' "'Mr. Cruncher knuckled his forehead "'as Sidney Carton and the spy returned from the dark room.' adieu mr barsad said the former our arrangement thus made you have nothing to fear from me he sat down in a chair on the hearth over against mr lorry when they were alone mr lorry asked him what he had done not much if it shall go ill with the prisoner i have ensured access to him once mr lorry's countenance fell 
"'It is all I could do,' said Carton. "'To propose too much would be to put this man's head under the axe, "'and, as he himself said, nothing worse could happen to him if he were denounced. "'It was obviously the weakness of the position. "'There is no help for it.' "'But access to him,' said Mr. Lorry, "'if it should go ill before the tribunal, will not save him.' "'I never said it would.' Mr. Lorry's eyes gradually sought the fire. His sympathy with his darling, and the heavy disappointment of his second arrest, gradually weakened them. He was an old man now, overborne with anxiety of late, and his tears fell. "'You're a good man and a true friend,' said Carton, in an altered voice. "'Forgive me if I notice that you are affected. I could not see my father weep and slip by careless, and I could not respect your sorrow more if you were my father. You are free from that misfortune, however.' Though he said the last words with a slip into his usual manner, there was a true feeling and respect both in his tone and in his touch, that Mr. Lorry, who had never seen the better side of him, was wholly unprepared for. He gave him his hand, and Carton gently pressed it. "'To return to poor Darnay,' said Carton, "'don't tell her of this interview or this arrangement. It would not enable her to go to see him. She might think it was contrived, in case of the worst, to convey to him the means of anticipating the sentence.' Mr. Lorry had not thought of that, and he looked quickly at Carton to see if it were in his mind. It seemed to be. He returned the look, and evidently understood it. "'She might think a thousand things,' Carton said, and any of them would only add to her trouble. Don't speak of me to her. As I said to you when I first came, I had better not see her. I can put my hand out to do any little helpful work for her that my hand can find to do without that. You are going to her, I hope? She must be very desolate to-night. I am going now, directly. I am glad of that. She has such a strong attachment to you and reliance on you. How does she look? Anxious and unhappy, but very beautiful. Ah! It was a long, grieving sound, like a sigh, almost like a sob. It attracted Mr. Lorry's eyes to Carton's face, which was turned to the fire. A light, or a shade, the old gentleman could not have said which, passed from it as swiftly as a change will sweep over a hillside on a wild, bright day. And he lifted his foot to put back one of the little flaming logs, which was tumbling forward. He wore the white riding-coat and top-boots, then in vogue, and the light of the fire touching their light surfaces made him look very pale, with his long brown hair, all untrimmed, hanging loose about him. His indifference to fire was sufficiently remarkable to elicit a word of remonstrance from Mr. Lorry. His boot was still upon the hot embers of the flaming log, when it had broken under the weight of his foot. "'I forgot it,' he said." Mr. Lorry's eyes were again attracted to his face. Taking note of the wasted air which clouded the naturally handsome features, and having the expression of prisoners' faces fresh in his mind, he was strongly reminded of that expression. "'And your duties here have drawn to an end, sir?' said Carton, turning to him. "'Yes.' 
As I was telling you last night when Lucy came in so unexpectedly, I have at length done all that I can do here. I hope to have left them in perfect safety, and then to have quitted Paris. I have my leave to pass. I was ready to go. They were both silent. "'Yours is a long life to look back upon, sir,' said Carton wistfully. "'I am in my seventy-eighth year.' You have been useful all your life, steadily and constantly occupied, trusted, respected, and looked up to. I have been a man of business ever since I have been a man. Indeed, I may say that I was a man of business when a boy. See what a place you fill at seventy-eight. How many people will miss you when you leave it empty? A solitary old bachelor, answered Mr. Lorry, shaking his head. There is nobody to weep for me. "'How can you say that? Wouldn't she weep for you? Wouldn't her child?' "'Yes, yes, thank God. I didn't quite mean what I said.' "'It is a thing to thank God for, is it not?' "'Surely, surely.' "'If you could say with truth to your own solitary heart to-night, "'I have secured to myself the love and attachment, "'the gratitude or respect of no human creature.' I have won myself a tender place in no regard. I have done nothing good or serviceable to be remembered by. Your seventy-eight years would be seventy-eight heavy curses, would they not? You say truly, Mr. Carton. I think they would be. Sidney turned his eyes again upon the fire, and, after a silence of a few moments, said, I should like to ask you, does your childhood seem far off? Do the days when you sat at your mother's knee seem days of very long ago? Responding to his softened manner, Mr. Lorry answered, Twenty years back, yes, at this time of my life, no. For, as I draw closer and closer to the end, I travel in the circle, nearer and nearer to the beginning. It seems to be one of the kind smoothings and preparing of the way. My heart is touched now by many remembrances that had long fallen asleep of my pretty young mother and I so old, and by many associations of the days when what we called the world was not so real with me, and my faults were not confirmed in me. I understand the feeling, exclaimed Carton with a bright flush, and you are the better for it? I hope so. Carton terminated the conversation here, by rising to help him on with his outer coat. But you, said Mr. Lorry, reverting to the theme, you are young. Yes, said Carton, I am not old, but my young way was never the way to age. Enough of me. And of me, I am sure, said Mr. Lorry. Are you going out? I'll walk with you to her gate. You know my vagabond and restless habits. If I should prowl about the streets a long time, don't be uneasy. I shall reappear in the morning. You go to the court to-morrow? Yes, unhappily. I shall be there, but only as one of the crowd. My spy will find a place for me. Take my arm, sir. Mr. Lorry did so, and they went downstairs and out into the streets. A few minutes brought them to Mr. Lorry's destination. Carton left him there, but lingered at a little distance, and turned back to the gate again when it was shut, and touched it. He had heard of her going to the prison every day. She came out here, he said, looking about him. 
turned this way, must have trod on these stones often. Let me follow in her steps. It was ten o'clock at night when he stood before the prison of La Force, where she had stood hundreds of times. A little wood-sawyer, having closed his shop, was smoking his pipe at his shop-door. "'Good night, citizen,' said Sidney Carton, pausing in going by, for the man eyed him inquisitively. "'Good night, citizen. How goes the Republic?' "'You mean the guillotine? Not ill. Sixty-three to-day. We shall mount to a hundred soon. Samson and his men complain sometimes of being exhausted. <laughs> he is so droll, that Samson, such a barber. Do you often go to see him? Shave? Always. Every day. What a barber! You have seen him at work?' "'Never. Never.' Go and see him when he has a good batch. Figure this to yourself, citizen. He shaved the sixty-three to-day in less than two pipes. Less than two pipes. Word of honour. As the grinning little man held up the pipe he was smoking to explain how he timed the executioner, Carton was so sensible of a rising desire to strike the life out of him that he turned away. "'But you are not English,' said the wood-sawyer, "'though you wear English dress?' "'Yes,' said Carton, pausing again and answering over his shoulder. "'You speak like a Frenchman. "'I'm an old student here. "'Aha, a perfect Frenchman. "'Good night, Englishman. "'Good night, citizen.' "'But go and see that droll dog,' the little man persisted, "'calling after him, and take a pipe with you.' Sidney had not gone far out of sight when he stopped in the middle of the street under a glimmering lamp and wrote with his pencil on a scrap of paper. Then, traversing with the decided step of one who remembered the way well, several dark and dirty streets, much dirtier than usual, for the best public thoroughfares remained uncleansed in those times of terror. He stopped at a chemist's shop, which the owner was closing with his own hands. A small, dim, crooked shop, kept in a tortuous uphill thoroughfare by a small, dim, crooked man. Giving this citizen, too, good-night, as he confronted him at his counter, he laid the scrap of paper before him. Phew! the chemist whistled softly as he read it. Hi! 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 Sidney Carton took no heed, and the chemist said, For you, citizen? For me. "'You'll be careful to keep them separate, citizen. "'You know the consequence of mixing them?' "'Perfectly.' "'Certain small packets were made and given to him. "'He put them one by one in the breast of his inner coat, "'counted out the money for them, and deliberately left the shop. "'There was nothing more to do,' said he, glancing upward at the moon, "'until to-morrow. I can't sleep.' It was not a reckless manner, the manner in which he said these words aloud under the fast-sailing clouds, nor was it more expressive of negligence than defiance. It was the settled manner of a tired man who had wandered and struggled and got lost, but who at length struck into his road and saw its end. 
Long ago, when he had been famous among his earliest competitors as a youth of great promise, he had followed his father to the grave. His mother had died years before. These solemn words, which had been read at his father's grave, arose in his mind as he went down the dark streets, among the heavy shadows, with the moon and the clouds sailing on high above him. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. In a city dominated by the axe, alone at night, with natural sorrow rising in him for the sixty-three who had been that day put to death, and for to-morrow's victims then awaiting their doom in the prisons, and still of to-morrow's and to-morrow's, the chain of association that brought the words home like a rusty old ship's anchor from the deep might have been easily found. He did not seek it, but repeated them, and went on. With a solemn interest in the lighted windows where the people were going to rest, forgetful through a few calm hours of the horrors surrounding them, in the towers of the churches where no prayers were said, for the popular revulsion had even travelled that length of self-destruction from years of priestly impostors, plunderers, and profligates. In the distant burial places, reserved as they wrote upon the gates for eternal sleep, in the abounding jails, and in the streets along which the sixties rolled to a death which had become so common and material that no sorrowful story of a haunting spirit ever arose among the people out of all the workings of the guillotine, with a solemn interest in the whole life and death of the city settling down to its short nightly pause in fury. Sidney Carton crossed the Seine again for the lighter streets. Few coaches were abroad, for riders in coaches were liable to be suspected, and gentility hid its head in red nightcaps, and put on heavy shoes, and trudged. But the theatres were all well filled, and the people poured cheerfully out as he passed, and went chatting home. At one of the theatre doors there was a little girl with a mother, looking for a way across the street through the mud. He carried the child over, and before the timid arm was loose from his neck, asked her for a kiss. "'I am the resurrection and the life,' saith the Lord. "'He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die.' Now that the streets were quiet, and the night wore on, the words were in the echoes of his feet, and were in the air, perfectly calm and steady, he sometimes repeated them to himself as he walked, but he heard them always. The night wore out, and as he stood upon the bridge, listening to the water as it splashed the river walls of the island of Paris, where the picturesque confusion of houses and cathedral shone bright in the light of the moon, the day came coldly, looking like a dead face out of the sky. Then the night, with the moon and the stars, turned pale and died, and for a little while it seemed as if creation were delivered over to death's dominion. 
but the glorious sun rising seemed to strike those words that burden of the night straight and warm to his heart in its long bright rays and looking along them with reverently shaded eyes a bridge of light appeared to span the air between him and the sun while the river sparkled under it the strong tide so swift so deep and certain was like a congenial friend in the morning stillness he walked by the stream far from the houses and in the light and warmth of the sun fell asleep on the bank when he awoke and was afoot again he lingered there yet a little longer watching an eddy that turned and turned purposeless until the stream absorbed it and carried it on to the sea like me a trading-boat with a sail of the softened colour of a dead leaf then glided into his view floated by him and died away as its silent track in the water disappeared the prayer that had broken up out of his heart for a merciful consideration of all his poor blindnesses and errors ended in the words i am the resurrection and the life Mr. Lorry was already out when he got back, and it was easy to surmise where the good old man was gone. Sidney Carton drank nothing but a little coffee, ate some bread, and, having washed and changed to refresh himself, went out to the place of trial. The court was all astir and abuzz when the black sheep, whom many fell away from in dread, pressed him into an obscure corner among the crowd. Mr. Lorry was there, and Dr. Manette was there. She was there, sitting beside her father. When her husband was brought in, she turned a look upon him, so sustaining, so encouraging, so full of admiring love and pitying tenderness, yet so courageous for his sake, that it called the healthy blood into his face, brightened his glance, and animated his heart if there had been any eyes to notice the influence of her look on sidney carton it would have been seen to be the same influence exactly before that unjust tribunal there was little or no order of procedure ensuring to any accused person any reasonable hearing there could have been no such revolution if all laws forms and ceremonies had not first been so monstrously abused that the suicidal vengeance of the revolution was to scatter them all to the winds every eye was turned to the jury the same determined patriots and good republicans as yesterday and the day before and to-morrow and the day after eager and prominent among them one man with a craving face and his fingers perpetually hovering about his lips whose appearance gave great satisfaction to the spectators a life-thirsting cannibal-looking bloody-minded juryman the jacques three of saint antoine one the whole jury as a jury of dogs impanelled to try the deer every eye then turned to the five judges and the public prosecutor no favourable leaning in that quarter to-day a fell uncompromising murderous business meaning there every eye then sought some other eye in the crowd and gleamed at it approvingly and heads nodded at one another before bending forward with a strained attention 
Charles Evremond, called Darnay, released yesterday, reaccused and retaken yesterday, indictment delivered to him last night, suspected and denounced enemy of the Republic, aristocrat, one of a family of tyrants, one of a race prescribed, for that they had used their abolished privileges to the infamous oppression of the people. Charles Evremond, called Darnay, in right of such prescription, absolutely dead in law. To this effect, in as few or fewer words, the public prosecutor. The president asked, was the accused openly denounced, or secretly? Openly president? By whom? Three voices, Ernest Defarge, wine-vendor of Saint-Antoine? Good. Therese Defarge, his wife? Good. Alexandre Manette, physician? A great uproar took place in the court, and in the midst of it Dr. Manette was seen pale and trembling, standing where he had been seated. "'President, I indignantly protest to you that this is a forgery and a fraud. You know the accused to be the husband of my daughter, my daughter, and those dear to her are far dearer to me than my life.' who and where is the false conspirator who says that i denounce the husband of my child citizen manette be tranquil to fail in submission to the authority of the tribunal would be to put yourself out of law as to what is dearer to you than life nothing can be so dear to a good citizen as the republic loud acclamations hailed this rebuke the president rang his bell and with warmth resumed if the republic should demand of you the sacrifice of your child herself you would have no duty but to sacrifice her listen to what is to follow in the meanwhile be silent frantic acclamations were again raised dr manette sat down with his eyes looking around and his lips trembling his daughter drew closer to him the craving man on the jury rubbed his hands together and restored the usual hand to his mouth defarge was produced when the court was quiet enough to admit of his being heard and rapidly expounded the story of the imprisonment and of his having been a mere boy in the doctor's service and of the release and of the state of the prisoner when released and delivered to him this short examination followed for the court was quick with its work you did good service at the taking of the bastille citizen i believe so here an excited woman screeched from the crowd. "'You were one of the best patriots there! Why not say so? You were a cannoneer that day there, and you were among the first to enter the accursed fortress when it fell! Patriots, I speak the truth!' It was the vengeance who, amidst the warm commendations of the audience, thus assisted the proceedings. The president rang his bell, but the vengeance, warming with encouragement, shrieked, I defy that bell, wherein she was likewise much commended. Inform the tribunal of what you did that day within the Bastille, citizen. 
"'I knew,' said Defarge, looking down at his wife, who stood at the bottom of the steps on which he was raised, looking steadily up at him, "'I knew that prisoner of whom I speak had been confined in a cell known as 105 North Tower. I knew it from himself. He knew himself by no other name than 105 North Tower, when he made shoes under my care. As I served my gun that day, I resolve, when the place shall fall, to examine that cell. It falls. I mount to the cell with a fellow citizen who is one of the jury, directed by a jailer. I examine it very closely. In a hole in the chimney where a stone has been worked out and replaced, I find a written paper. This is that written paper. I have made it my business to examine some specimens of the writing of Dr. Manette. This is the writing of Dr. Manette. I confide this paper in the writing of Dr. Manette to the hands of the President. Let it be read. In a dead silence and stillness, the prisoner under trial looking lovingly at his wife, his wife only looking from him to look with solicitude at her father, Dr. Manette keeping his eyes fixed on the reader, Madame Defarge never taking hers from the prisoner, Defarge never taking his from his feasting wife, and all the other eyes there intent upon the doctor, who saw none of them. The paper was read as follows. Chapter 10. The Substance of the Shadow I, Alexandre Manette, unfortunate physician, native of Beauvais, and afterwards resident in Paris, write this melancholy paper in my doleful cell in the Bastille, during the last month of the year 1767. I write it at stolen intervals, under every difficulty. I design to secrete it into the wall of the chimney, where I have slowly and laboriously made a place of concealment for it. Some pitying hand may find it there, when I and my sorrows are dust. These words are formed by the rusty iron point with which I write with difficulty in scrapings of soot and charcoal from the chimney, mixed with blood in the last month of the tenth year of my captivity. Hope has quite departed from my breast. I know from terrible warnings I have noted in myself that my reason will not long remain unimpaired, but I solemnly declare that I am at this time in the possession of my right mind, that my memory is exact and circumstantial, and that I write the truth as I shall answer for these my last recorded words, whether they be ever read by men or not, at the eternal judgment seat. One cloudy moonlight night, in the third week of December, I think the twenty-second of the month, in the year 1757, I was walking on a retired part of the quay by the Seine, for the refreshment of the frosty air, at an hour's distance from my place of residence in the street of the School of Medicine, when a carriage came along behind me, driven very fast. As I stood aside to let that carriage pass, apprehensive that it might otherwise run me down, a head was put out at the window, and a voice called to the driver to stop. The carriage stopped as soon as the driver could rein in his horses, and the same voice called to me by my name. I answered. The carriage was then so far in advance of me that two gentlemen had time to open the door and alight before I came up with it.
I observed that they were both wrapped in cloaks, and appeared to conceal themselves. As they stood side by side near the carriage door, I also observed that they both looked of about my own age, or rather younger, and that they were greatly alike in stature, manner, voice, and, as far as I could see, face, too. "'You are Dr. Manette?' said one. "'I am.' Dr. Manette, formerly of Beauvais, said the other, the young physician, originally an expert surgeon, who, within the last year or two, has made a rising reputation in Paris. Gentlemen, I returned, I am that Dr. Manette of whom you speak so graciously. We have been to your residence, said the first, and not being so fortunate as to find you there, and being informed that you were probably walking in this direction, we followed, in the hope of overtaking you. Were you pleased to enter the carriage? The manner of both was imperious, and they both moved, as these words were spoken, so as to place me between themselves and the carriage door. They were armed, I was not. "'Gentlemen,' said I, "'pardon me, but I usually inquire who does me the honour to seek my assistance, and what is the nature of the case to which I am summoned?' The reply to this was made by him who had spoken second. "'Doctor, your clients are people of condition. As to the nature of the case, our confidence in your skill assures us that you will ascertain it for yourself better than we can describe it. Enough. Will you please to enter the carriage?' I could do nothing but comply, and I entered it in silence. They both entered after me, the last springing in after putting up the steps. The carriage turned about and drove on at its former speed. I repeat this conversation exactly as it occurred. I have no doubt that it is word for word the same. I describe everything exactly as it took place, constraining my mind not to wander from the task. Where I made the broken marks that follow here, I leave off for the time, and put my paper in its hiding place. Broken Mark the carriage left the streets behind, passed the north barrier, and emerged upon the country road. At two-thirds of a league from the barrier, I did not estimate the distance at that time, but afterwards, when I traversed it, it struck out of the main avenue, and presently stopped at a solitary house. We all three alighted, and walked by a damp, soft footpath in a garden, where a neglected fountain had overflowed to the door of the house. It was not opened immediately, in answer to the ringing of the bell, and one of my two conductors struck the man who opened it with his heavy riding-glove across the face. There was nothing in this action to attract my particular attention, for I had seen common people struck more commonly than dogs. But the other of the two, being angry likewise, struck the man in like manner with his arm. The look and bearing of the brothers were then so exactly alike that I then first perceived them to be twin brothers. From the time of our alighting at the outer gate, which we found locked, and which one of the brothers had opened to admit us, and had relocked, I had heard cries proceeding from an upper chamber. I was conducted to this chamber straight, the cries growing louder as we ascended the stairs, and I found a patient in a high fever of the brain, lying on a bed. 
The patient was a woman of great beauty and young, assuredly not much past twenty. Her hair was torn and ragged, and her arms were bound to her sides with sashes and handkerchiefs. I noticed that these bonds were all portions of a gentleman's dress. On one of them, which was a fringed scarf for a dress of ceremony, I saw the armorial bearings of a noble, and the letter E. I saw this within the first minute of my contemplation of the patient, for, in her restless strivings, she had turned over on her face on the edge of the bed, had drawn the end of the scarf into her mouth, and was in danger of suffocation. My first act was to put out my hand to relieve her breathing, and, in moving the scarf aside, the embroidery in the corner caught my sight. I turned her gently over, placed my hands upon her breast to calm her and keep her down, and looked into her face. Her eyes were dilated and wild, and she constantly uttered piercing shrieks, and repeated the words, My husband, my father, and my brother, and then counted up to twelve, and said, Hush! For an instant, and no more, she would pause to listen, and then the piercing shrieks would begin again, and she would repeat the cry, My husband, my father, and my brother, and would count up to twelve, and say, Hush! There was no variation in the order or the manner. There was no cessation, but the regular moment's pause in the utterance of these sounds. How long, I asked, has this lasted? To distinguish the brothers, I will call them the elder and the younger. By the elder, I mean him who exercised the most authority. It was the elder who replied, Since about this hour last night, she has a husband, a father, and a brother? A brother. I do not address her brother? He answered with great contempt, No. She has some recent association with the number twelve? The younger brother impatiently rejoined, With twelve o'clock? See, gentlemen, said I, still keeping my hands upon her breast, how useless I am, as you have brought me. If I had known what I was coming to see, I could have come provided. As it is, time must be lost. There are no medicines to be obtained in this lonely place. The elder brother looked to the younger, who said haughtily, "'There is a case of medicines here,' and brought it from a closet, and put it on the table. Broken Mark I opened some of the bottles, smelt them, and put the stoppers to my lips. If I had wanted to use anything save narcotic medicines that were poisons in themselves, I would not have administered any of those.' "'Do you doubt them?' asked the younger brother. "'You see, monsieur, I am going to use them,' I replied, and said no more. I made the patient swallow with great difficulty, and after many efforts, the dose that I desired to give. As I intended to repeat it after a while, and as it was necessary to watch its influence, I then sat down by the side of the bed.' 
There was a timid and suppressed woman in attendance, wife of the man downstairs, who had retreated into a corner. The house was damp and decayed, indifferently furnished, evidently recently occupied and temporarily used. Some thick old hangings had been nailed up before the windows to deaden the sound of the shrieks. They continued to be uttered in their regular succession, with the cry, "'My husband! My father! and My brother!' the counting up to twelve, and "'Hush!' The frenzy was so violent that I had not unfastened the bandages restraining the arms." but i had looked to them to see that they were not painful the only spark of encouragement in the case was that my hand upon the sufferer's breast had this much soothing influence that for minutes at a time it tranquillized the figure it had no effect upon the cries no pendulum could be more regular for the reason that my hand had this effect, I assume, I had sat by the side of the bed for half an hour, with the two brothers looking on, before the elder said, "'There is another patient.' I was startled, and asked, "'Is it a pressing case?' "'You had better see,' he carelessly answered, and took up a light. Broken Mark the other patient lay in a back room across a second staircase, which was a species of loft over a stable. There was a low plastered ceiling to a part of it. The rest was open to the ridge of the tiled roof, and there were beams across. Hay and straw were stored in that portion of the place, faggots for firing, and a heap of apples in sand. I had to pass through that part to get at the other. My memory is circumstantial and unshaken. I try it with these details, and I see them all in this my cell in the Bastille, near the close of the tenth year of my captivity, as I saw them all that night. On some hay on the ground, with a cushion thrown under his head, lay a handsome peasant boy, a boy of not more than seventeen at the most. He lay on his back, with his teeth set, his right hand clenched on his breast, and his glaring eyes looking straight upward. I could not see where his wound was, as I kneeled on one knee over him, but I could see that he was dying of a wound from a sharp point. "'I am a doctor, my poor fellow,' said I. "'Let me examine it.' "'I do not want it examined,' he answered. "'Let it be!' It was under his hand, and I soothed him to let me move his hand away. The wound was a sword-thrust, received from twenty to twenty-four hours before, but no skill could have saved him if it had been looked to without delay. He was then dying fast. As I turned my eyes to the elder brother, I saw him looking down at this handsome boy whose life was ebbing out, as if he were a wounded bird, or hare, or rabbit, not at all as if he were a fellow-creature." "'How has this been done, monsieur?' said I. "'Crazed young common dog, a serf, forced my brother to draw upon him, and has fallen by my brother's sword like a gentleman.' There was no touch of pity, sorrow, or kindred humanity in this answer. The speaker seemed to acknowledge that it was inconvenient to have that different order of creature dying there, and that it would have been better if he had died in the usual obscure routine of his vermin kind. He was quite incapable of any compassionate feeling about the boy, or about his fate. 
The boy's eyes had slowly moved to him as he had spoken, and they now slowly moved to me. "'Doctor, they are very proud, these nobles, but we common dogs are proud too sometimes. They plunder us, outrage us, beat us, kill us, but we have a little pride left sometimes. She, have you seen her, doctor?' The shrieks and the cries were audible there, though subdued by the distance. He referred to them as if she were lying in our presence. I said, I have seen her. She is my sister, doctor. They have their shameful rights, these nobles, in the modesty and virtue of our sisters. Many years, but we have had good girls among us. I know it, and have heard my father say so. She was a good girl. She was betrothed to a good young man, too, a tenant of his. We were all tenants of his. That man who stands there, the other his brother, the worst of a bad race." It was with the greatest difficulty that the boy gathered bodily force to speak, but his spirit spoke with a dreadful emphasis. We were so robbed by that man who stands there as all we common dogs are by those superior beings, taxed by him without mercy, obliged to work for him without pay, obliged to grind our corn at his mill, obliged to feed scores of his tame birds on our wretched crops, and forbidden for our lives to keep a single tame bird of our own, pillaged and plundered to that degree that when we chanced to have a bit of meat we ate it in fear with the door barred and the shutters closed that his people should not see it and take it from us i say we were so robbed and hunted and were made so poor that her father told us it was a dreadful thing to bring a child into the world and that what we should most pray for was that our women might be barren and our miserable race die out I had never before seen the sense of being oppressed, bursting forth like a fire. I had supposed that it must be latent in the people somewhere, but I had never seen it break out until I saw it in the dying boy. Nevertheless, doctor, my sister married. He was ailing at that time, poor fellow, and she married her lover, that she might tend and comfort him in our cottage, our dog-hut, as that man would call it. She had not been married many weeks, though when that man's brother uh, saw her and admired her and asked that man to lend her to him, for what are husbands among us? he was willing enough but my sister was good and virtuous and hated his brother with a hatred as strong as mine what did the two then to persuade her husband to use his influence with her to make her willing the boy's eyes which had been fixed on mine slowly turned to the looker-on and i saw in the two faces that all he said was true the two opposing kinds of pride confronting one another. I can see, even in this Bastille, the gentleman's all negligent indifference, the peasants all trodden down the sentiment and passionate revenge. You know, doctor, that it is among the rights of these nobles to harness us common dogs to carts and drive us. They so harnessed him and drove him. 
you know that it is among their rights to keep us in their grounds all night quieting the frogs in order that their noble sleep may not be disturbed they kept him out in the unwholesome mists at night and ordered him back into his harness in the day but he was not persuaded no taken out of harness one day at noon to feed if he could find food he sobbed twelve times once for every stroke of the bell and died on her bosom nothing human could have held life in the boy but his determination to tell all that was wrong he forced back the gathering shadows of death as he forced his clenched right hand to remain clenched and to cover his wound then with that man's permission and even with his aid his brother took her away in spite of what i know she must have told his brother and what that is will not be long unknown to you doctor if it is now his brother took her away for his pleasure and diversion for a little while i saw her pass me on the road when i took the tidings home our father's heart burst he never spoke one of the words that filled it i took my young sister for i have another to a place beyond the reach of this man and where at least she will never be his vassal then i tracked the brother here and last night climbed in a common dog but sword in hand where is the loft window it was somewhere here the room was darkening to his sight the world was narrowing around him i glanced about me and saw that the hay and straw were trampled over the floor as if there had been a struggle she heard me and ran in i told her not to come near us till he was dead he came in and first tossed me some pieces of money then struck at me with a whip but I, though a common dog, so struck at him as to make him draw. Let him break into as many pieces as he will the sword that he stained with my common blood. He drew to defend himself, thrust at me with all his skill for his life. My glance had fallen, but a few moments before, on the fragments of a broken sword lying among the hay. That weapon was a gentleman's. In another place lay an old sword that seemed to have been a soldier's. "'Now lift me up, doctor, lift me up. Where is he?' "'He is not here,' I said, supporting the boy, and thinking that he referred to the brother. "'He, proud as these nobles are, he is afraid to see me. Where is the man who was here? Turn my face to him!' I did so, raising the boy's head against my knee. But, invested for the moment with extraordinary power, he raised himself completely, obliging me to rise too, or I could not have still supported him. Marquis, said the boy, turned to him with his eyes open wide and his right hand raised, in the days when all these things are to be answered for, I summon you and yours to the last of your bad race to answer for them. I mark this cross of blood upon you as a sign that I do it. 
in the days when all these things are to be answered for i summon your brother the worst of the bad race to answer for them separately i mark this cross of blood upon him as a sign that i do it twice he put his hand to the wound in his breast and with his forefinger drew a cross in the air he stood for an instant with the finger yet raised and as it dropped he dropped with it and i laid him down dead broken mark when i returned to the bedside of the young woman i found her raving in precisely the same order of continuity i knew that this might last for many hours and that it would probably end in the silence of the grave i repeated the medicines i had given her and i sat at the side of the bed until the night was far advanced she never abated the piercing quality of her shrieks never stumbled in the distinctness or the order of her words they were always my husband my father and my brother one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve hush this lasted twenty-six hours from the time when i first saw her i had come and gone twice and was again sitting by her when she began to falter i did what little could be done to assist that opportunity and by and by she sank into a lethargy and lay like the dead it was as if the wind and rain had lulled at last after a long and fearful storm i released her arms and called the woman to assist me to compose her figure and the dress she had torn it was then that i knew her condition to be that of one in whom the first expectations of being a mother have arisen and it was then that i lost the little hope i had had of her is she dead asked the marquis whom i will still describe as the elder brother coming booted into the room from his horse not dead said i but like to die what strength there is in these common bodies he said looking down at her with some curiosity there is prodigious strength i answered him in sorrow and despair he first laughed at my words and then frowned at them he moved a chair with his foot near to mine ordered the woman away and said in a subdued voice doctor finding my brother in this difficulty with these hinds i recommended that your aid should be invited your reputation is high and as a young man with your fortune to make you are probably mindful of your interest the things that you see here are things to be seen and not spoken of i listened to the patient's breathing and avoided answering do you honour me with your attention doctor monsieur said i in my profession the communications of patients are always received in confidence i was guarded in my answer for i was troubled in my mind with what i had heard and seen her breathing was so difficult to trace that i carefully tried the pulse and the heart there was life and no more looking round as i resumed my seat i found both the brothers intent upon me broken mark 
I write with so much difficulty, the cold is so severe, I am so fearful of being detected and consigned to an underground cell and total darkness, that I must abridge this narrative. There is no confusion or failure in my memory. It can recall and could detail every word that was ever spoken between me and those brothers. She lingered for a week. Towards the last I could understand some few syllables that she said to me by placing my ear close to her lips. She asked me where she was, and I told her, who I was, and I told her. It was in vain that I asked her for her family name. She faintly shook her head upon the pillow, and kept her secret as the boy had done. I had no opportunity of asking her any question until I had told the brothers she was sinking fast and could not live another day. Until then, though no one was ever presented to her consciousness save the woman and myself, one or other of them had always jealously sat behind the curtain at the head of the bed when I was there. But when it came to that, they seemed careless what communication I might hold with her, as if the thought passed through my mind, I were dying. Too. I always observed that their pride bitterly resented the younger brothers, as I call him, having crossed swords with a peasant, and that peasant a boy. The only consideration that appeared to affect the mind of either of them was the consideration that this was highly degrading to the family, and was ridiculous. As often as I caught the younger brother's eyes, their expression reminded me that he disliked me deeply for knowing what I knew from the boy. He was smoother and more polite to me than the elder, but I saw this. I also saw that I was an encumbrance in the mind of the elder, too. My patient died two hours before midnight, at a time by my watch, answering almost to the minute when I had first seen her. I was alone with her, when her forlorn young head drooped gently on one side, and all her earthly wrongs and sorrows ended." The brothers were waiting in a room downstairs, impatient to ride away. I had heard them, alone at the bedside, striking their boots with their riding-whips, and loitering up and down. "'At last she is dead,' said the elder, when I went in. "'She is dead,' said I. "'I congratulate you, my brother,' were his words, as he turned around. He had before offered me money, which I had postponed taking. He now gave me a rouleau of gold. I took it from his hand, but laid it on the table. I had considered the question, and had resolved to accept nothing. "'Pray excuse me,' said I. "'Under the circumstances, no.' They exchanged looks, but bent their heads to me as I bent mine to them, and we parted without another word on either side." broken mark. I am weary, 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 worn down by misery. I cannot read what I have written with this gaunt hand. Early in the morning the rouleau of gold was left at my door in a little box with my name on the outside. From the first I had anxiously considered what I ought to do. I decided, that day, to write privately to the minister, stating the nature of the two cases to which I had been summoned, and the place to which I had gone, in effect stating all the circumstances. 
I knew what court influence was, and what the immunity of the nobles were, and I expected that the matter would never be heard of, but I wished to relieve my own mind. I had kept the matter a profound secret, even from my wife, and this, too, I resolved to state in my letter. I had no apprehension whatever of my real danger, but I was conscious that there might be danger for others, if others were compromised by possessing the knowledge that I possessed. I was much engaged that day, and could not complete my letter that night. I rose long before my usual time next morning to finish it. It was the last day of the year. The letter was lying before me, just completed, when I was told that a lady waited, who wished to see me. Broken Mark. I am growing more and more unequal to the task I have set myself. It is so cold, so dark, my senses are so benumbed, and the gloom upon me is so dreadful. The lady was young, engaging, and handsome, but not marked for long life. She was in great agitation. She presented herself to me as the wife of the Marquis Saint-Evremond. I connected the title by which the boy had addressed the elder brother with the initial letter embroidered on the scarf, and had no difficulty in arriving at the conclusion that I had seen that nobleman very lately. My memory is still accurate, but I cannot write the words of our conversation. I suspect that I am watched more closely than I was, and I know not at what times I may be watched. She had in part suspected, and in part discovered, the main fact of the cruel story of her husband's share in it and my being resorted to. She did not know that the girl was dead. Her hope had been, she said, in great distress, to show her in secret a woman's sympathy. Her hope had been to avert the wrath of heaven from a house that had long been hateful to the suffering many. She had reasons for believing that there was a young sister living, and her greatest desire was to help that sister. I could tell her nothing but that there was such a sister. Beyond that I knew nothing. Her inducement to come to me, relying on my confidence, had been the hope that I could tell her the name and place of abode, whereas to this wretched hour I am ignorant of both. Broken Mark These scraps of paper fail me. One was taken from me with a warning yesterday. I must finish my record to-day. She was a good, compassionate lady, and not happy in her marriage. How could she be? The brother distrusted and disliked her, and his influence was all opposed to her. She stood in dread of him, and in dread of her husband, too. When I handed her down to the door, there was a child, a pretty boy from two to three years old, in her carriage. "'For his sake, doctor,' she said, pointing to him in tears, I would do all I can to make what poor amends I can. He will never prosper in his inheritance otherwise. I have a presentiment that if no other innocent atonement is made for this, it will one day be required of him. What I have left to call my own, it is little beyond the worth of a few jewels. I will make it the first charge of his life to bestow, with the compassion and lamenting of his dead mother, on this injured family. Family, if the sister can be discovered.
recovered she kissed the boy and said caressing him it is for thine own dear sake thou wilt be faithful little charles the child answered her bravely yes i kissed her hand and she took him in her arms and went away caressing him i never saw her more as she had mentioned her husband's name in the faith that i knew it i added no mention of it to my letter i sealed my letter and not trusting it out of my own hands delivered it myself that day that night the last night of the year towards nine o'clock a man in a black dress rang at my gate demanding to see me and softly followed my servant ernest defarge a youth upstairs when my servant came into the room where i sat with my wife o oh, my wife beloved of my heart my fair young english wife we saw the man who was supposed to be at the gate standing silent behind him an urgent case in the rue saint honore he said it would not detain me he had a coach in waiting it brought me here it brought me to my grave when i was clear of the house a black muffler was drawn tightly over my mouth from behind and my arms were pinioned the two brothers crossed the road from a dark corner and identified me with a single gesture the marquis took from his pocket the letter i had written showed it me burnt it in the light of a lantern that was held and extinguished the ashes with his foot not a word was spoken i was brought here i was brought to my living grave if it had pleased god to put it in the hard heart of either of the brothers in all these frightful years to grant me any tidings of my dearest wife so much as to let me know by a word whether alive or dead i might have thought that he had not quite abandoned them but now i believe that the mark of the red cross is fatal to them and that they have no part in his mercies and them and their descendants to the last of their race i alexandre manette unhappy prisoner do this last night of the year seventeen sixty seven in my unbearable agony denounce to the times when all these things shall be answered for i denounce them to heaven and to earth a terrible sound arose when the reading of this document was done a sound of craving an eagerness that had nothing articulate in it but blood the narrative called up the most revengeful passions of the time and there was not a head in the nation but must have dropped before it little need in presence of that tribunal and that auditory to show how the defarges had not made the paper public with the other captured bastille memorials born in procession and had kept it biding their time little need to show that this detested family name had long been anathematized by saint antoine and was wrought into the fatal register the man never trod ground whose virtues and services would have sustained him him in that place that day against such denunciation and all the worse for the doomed man that the denouncer was a well-known citizen his own attached friend the father of his wife 
one of the frenzied aspirations of the populace was for imitations of the questionable public virtues of antiquity and for sacrifices and self-immolations on the people's altar therefore when the president said else had his own head quivered on his shoulders that the good physician of the republic would deserve better still of the republic by rooting out an obnoxious family of aristocrats and would doubtless feel a sacred glow and joy in making his daughter a widow and her child an orphan there was wild excitement patriotic fervour not a touch of human sympathy much influence around him has that doctor murmured madame defarge smiling to the vengeance save him now my doctor save him at every juryman's vote there was a roar another and another roar and roar unanimously voted at heart and by descent an aristocrat an enemy of the republic a notorious oppressor of the people back to the conciergerie and death within four-and-twenty hours so you've heard the resurrection theme coming out of sydney's mouth once again you've seen more of our duality theme although this time the two the kind of twin brothers the the dual marquis are both evil um did you get that the first marquis darnay's dad was nasty guy but darnay's uncle was the other nasty guy he's the one who ran over the child in book two chapter seven that started all of the problems um i'm also getting the sins of the father visited on the son thing like you see in east of eden the book or the james dean film which is lovely or um the ibsen play ghosts you you get more of that um the kids have to pay for the sins of their parents thing although clearly darnay's mom not such a bad person there is still one huge secret that will be revealed i promise but not today um jerry cruncher jerry cruncher showing some remorse going to be a grave digger now instead of working for telson's for his day job uh, as a way to do penance for having dug up dead bodies gross for uh extra income and uh, and giving the job to his son um sydney carton's transformation one of the biggest most important ones in all of literature you're going to see more of it soon 